Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. As I was studying in my office this past Friday, I got a phone call from uh, Bronson Hospital, and it was Lori Funk, and she had called to tell me that Pastor Spencer had uh, passed away. She was crying. I started to cry. I called Eunice to let her know, and I was just choked up and couldn't even, like, hardly even tell her uh, at all. She's like, John, are you there? I was like, yeah, I just can't talk, you know, just overcome with, uh, you know, just the, the, the emotion, um, you know, this just profound sense of loss, and not just for me personally, but for our church, because Pastor Spencer was a spiritual father uh, to so many of us here, leading many of you to the Lord, uh, but being an encouragement to all of us. And I was just thinking, you know, back through the, through the years, you know, he'd come into my office a lot of times after I got done preaching on a, like a Monday or a Tuesday, he'd come in and he'd be like, John, you know how he talks, he'd say your name, John. And, uh, and he'd go on to, you know, say, uh, you know, thanks for, thanks for saying this or how you worded this. I really appreciated that. And I thought he was just buttering me up to get to the real part where, it, you know, you know what people do, get to the real part where they like want to tell you what you did wrong. And that never came. I was always on the edge of my seat being like, okay, all right, get to why you're really here. But it was never that. He always just was an encouragement. He was always uh, giving words of, of blessing uh, to people, encouraging and, and building up uh, the body of Christ. And uh, I will always remember him as a man of encouragement. So I was sitting in my office after I got that phone call, and I couldn't even think anymore. I mean, I was just like, done. No more sermon prep at all. I just, my, my mind just like switched off. And I, that's a bad feeling when you're preparing for a sermon, by the way. If you don't already know that, that's a, a bad feeling. And I was just sitting there, and I was praying. And, and God brought back a, a devotional I'd read all the way back in high school. And it was from uh, Oswald Chambers, a book that he wrote called My Utmost for His Highest. Some of you might be familiar with it. And he usually just, you know, gives short little devotions. And one of them was on Isaiah chapter 6. And it was really interesting because I remember in the devotion, it, it was interesting because he focused on, on the first couple of words of Isaiah 6. And it said, in the year King Uzziah died. And I was like, that's a weird opening to a devotion. You know, usually we, we could be like, okay, that's, that just gives us a time period and we skip over that. Uh, but Oswald Chambers dug into that a little bit more because it was significant. Because King Uzziah was one of the only uh, really godly kings of Judah. There was a lot of kings in Israel and Judah after the nation split. And, and uh, King Uzziah was one of the, the few godly ones under his leadership. wasn't perfect, but under his leadership, uh, he brought stability and prosperity to, to Judah. And uh, the, the people enjoyed him ruling over them. And uh, not only that, but he was also, uh, some theologians think, a friend of the prophet Isaiah. Not only a friend, he might have also have been related. And so it's in this context, in this call to ministry for the prophet Isaiah, that it starts by saying in the year that King Uzziah died. In this year that this, this, uh, this friend, this um, you know, figure that was so meaningful for their nation had passed away. It's in this context that Isaiah gave these next couple of lines. It says, in the, king, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I was thinking about that. I was just like, I can't help but think that that is Pastor Spencer's prayer for all of us in the year that he passed away, that we would see the glory of the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And it's, it's an amazing thing to think that the words on 
pages of scripture are no longer words for Pastor Spencer. This vision that Isaiah had is no longer just a vision for Pastor Spencer, but that he is in the throne of God, worshiping with us this morning and probably singing with the angels, holy, holy, holy. And uh, that was just a, a great encouragement to me. Uh, it didn't help me get the sermon ready this morning at all, but uh, it, it brought a lot of comfort, just uh, you know, praising, worshiping, and knowing that what Pastor Spencer preached about for all these decades of faithful ministry to our Lord, that he has realized in fullness the glory of the Lord. And I've, I know that is his prayer, especially today for us. Well, I hope I gave you enough time to find the tiny little baby book of Titus. It's a short little one there. We're going to be reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And so please read along with me. It says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women... Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reveled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached on Deuteronomy 6, and we talked about how discipleship begins at the home, in the home, and how God's heart is not just for us, it is also for us, our children, and our children's children. And we as parents and grandparents have a great responsibility to model authentic faith and disciple our kids. That's our first mission field. When we come home to our homes, there's a sign going in our home that says, you are now entering the mission field. That is our first mission field. That's where it begins. And so, uh, so the home is that first, that's a, uh, that first mission field. That is part of fulfilling the Great Commission. And we said that healthy homes make healthy leaders, make healthy churches, and healthy churches are a place that are ready to adopt, that are re ready to adopt and bring people in. And so today I'd like to expand on that, on the healthy homes, and talk about the second essential component of discipleship. Not only do we need healthy homes, we need healthy churches. This is like the dynamic duo, the tandem uh, discipleship places that have to happen. And uh, there's a curriculum that came out a few years ago, and it's called the Orange Curriculum. And I thought it was a, a great way. It's like, why do they call it the Orange Curriculum? It's a Christian curriculum they provided for churches. And you're like, why do they call it the Orange Curriculum? It's because they recognized that the essential nature of these two places where discipleship is a non-negotiable, it has to be happening. And they said that the color red represented the ties, the blood ties of family and the home. So they used red for that. And then they talked about uh, yellow being the color that symbolized the light of the church and the influence of discipleship in that. And they said when you combine those two together, you get the color orange. And it highlights it highlights the necessity, the essential nature of both of these places of discipleship, that they have to coexist. They need to happen together. And so, um, and so we're going to be talking specifically about discipleship in the church today. 
There's an illustration uh, that you, uh, you might have heard through the years. I heard it a while back, but uh, there's a story of a pastor, and uh, he was trying to get a hold of this guy who's missed church for a long time, hadn't been coming to church. And so being a good pastor, he decided that, you know, he'd call him up and see, you know, what was going on and kept calling the guy, leaving messages, and the, guys never got, the guy never got back to the pastor. And so finally, the pastor decided to go to this guy's house. He's like, I'm just going to go there and visit him and see how he's doing. And so he goes over there and knocks on the door. And I imagine when a pastor shows up unannounced uh, at your door, this guy probably felt similar feelings. Oh, I'm in trouble now, you know, in for it. And so he opened up the door. The pastor was there, you know, said their little greetings there. The pastor went in. And they went and sat in the living room in front of the fireplace. And they just sat there, and they sat there quietly. They were just watching the fire. Neither one of the men said anything. And after a little bit of time, an ember from the fire popped out onto the floor. And uh, fires are just mesmerizing in and of themselves. And embers are, are no different. If you get like a really hot ember, you get, you know, it's beautiful, that orange glow to it. And it has that pulsing, you know, kind of, you just see the life and the heat and the vibrancy and, and everything that was in the fire was inside of that ember as it popped out. And as they sat there and they watched it, it didn't take very long for that ember to start diminishing in its color. That orange started to subside and started to grow more gray, and that pulsing vibrancy slowed and eventually stopped. And it was at that moment the pastor went over and he grabbed that ember, he picked it up with his fingers, and he threw it back in the fire. And the man turned to the pastor and said, Thank you, pastor. And that Sunday, as the story goes, that man was in church. Now, I'm not sure if this story is true, but I think this illustration is certainly true. God designed the church to be a place where we catch fire, where we stir each other up to love and good works. And when we are away from the glow, and we're supposed to be away, we're supposed to be out there being that vibrant fire, we're supposed to be. But when we are away too long, that fire fades, and we so easily forget. And that's why Scripture keeps saying, remember, 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 remind each other, tell each other. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what discipleship is part of that too. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the gathering together of the believers. That's part of everyone's discipleship, of mine and of yours. Sometimes well-meaning people will say that the church shouldn't focus on internal discipleship, you know, meaning the home or, or amongst us as believers. And sometimes they'll point and say, well, it's because the Great Commission in Matthew and uh, in Acts 1.8 says, go into all the world. Go. Just go and make disciples. And not worrying about discipleship in our home and in the church. And, uh, but to that, I'd say, what kind of testimony is it? What kind of demonstration of God's power is it when we go and witness to the world while our homes and our churches are in disorder? In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives especially for members of his own household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the context of that verse, he's just talk, all Paul is talking about are the basic physical necessities in life. If you don't provide those for your, rel your relatives and your household, you are worse than an unbeliever. How much worse is it for us if we don't provide the spiritual necessities for real life to our homes? Discipleship in the home is an absolute necessity. In Philippians 1, it shows us in the church. It talks about the unity, the oneness of spirit, and the family of God. It says the church is a testimony to the lost, 
of our salvation, of their destruction. The church and the home are testimonies, and they are part of fulfilling the Great Commission. Why should people trust our message when we bring the gospel to them? Why should they trust us when our marriages and our homes are just as dysfunctional as everyone else's? Why should they listen to us? Why should people trust the gospel message about love and peace and the restoration of broken relationships when churches on every corner are not a testament to the expanding kingdom, but to a divided kingdom? Discipleship in the home and the church are essential to the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations. Because as we go, as we live our lives, our homes are part of our testimonies, and our church is part of our testimonies. Discipleship has to happen in these two places, the red and the yellow. We need the orange. I believe that's why Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Titus is a Gentile believer. He was converted as part of Paul's ministry and actually became a partner in ministry with Paul. That's cool to see. And Paul and uh, Titus uh, were traveling, and Paul left Titus on this island of Crete in the middle, middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And he told him in uh, Titus 1.5 why. He said, Titus, <laughs> Titus is probably like, why did you leave me here? <laughs> I can just imagine him asking the question. Middle of the ocean, hello, Paul. And once you hear about the people on the Isle of Crete, you'll probably get it a little bit more. Titus 1.5 Paul says to Titus, I left you there, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So we know there, at least to a certain degree, there was disorder in this church on the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Some would look at this letter and say, this isn't just a little bit of disorder. This is like absolute chaos. And as you read through chapter 1, you kind of pick up on some of this. In one, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Paul says, there are many insubordinate Empty talkers, deceivers, these people were teaching Jewish legalism and myths. So we have theological disorder. But there's also a lot of character disorder within the church too. This is what Paul says. Paul is quoting one of the Cretans' own uh, prophets, he said. In uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, this uh, Cretan prophet said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow, I mean, that's pretty strong language. And Paul says, this testimony is true. He didn't deny that at all. He's just like, this testimony is true. This is why you need to rebuke people within the church. It was so bad in chapter 1, verse 11, and it says that whole families were being upset and in turmoil. Do you get a sense? Are you thankful for being at Calvary Baptist Church this morning now? You better shake your head. <laughs> yes, amen. Thankful to be part of this family here. And, uh, so the church was in turmoil, homes were in turmoil, discipleship was in turmoil. And Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to help bring order. Now chapter 1 focuses on that first step in bringing order out of the chaos, establishing order in the church. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, partly because Pastor Tom spent the whole last year before he retired and talking a lot about uh, healthy churches, healthy leadership, qualification uh, for leaders, and also the task of leaders. That's what Titus 1 talks about. Qualifications for leaders and the task of leaders is to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Feed the sheep is giving them sound doctrine. And protecting the sheep 
is when we rebuke the false teaching and also confront sin. And so that's the, the feeding the sheep and the protecting the sheep. And so that's the first thing that Paul talked about uh, that Titus needed to set in order. Make sure uh, to, to make sure that things are healthy. You need good leaders that teach and rebuke. But it's the second point here in, that starts in chapter 2 that I think has been kind of undervalued in the churches today. But it's, I think, just as important as the healthy leadership in the church. Paul said to Titus, not only do you need healthy, qualified, spiritual leaders, he said you need spiritually healthy, qualified, how would you fill in the blank? Disciples, yeah. First two verses, it starts, it says you need spiritually qualified, healthy, older people. Now, a little bit later, he talks about the younger people too. So really, everyone needs to be spiritually qualified, healthy, and growing. But he's honing in right at the very first part of this. He's talking about a special function in Judy that the older saints in the church have. Spiritually healthy, qualified older saints are essential, essential, non-negotiable, are needed for healthy discipleship to happen in the church. Titus 2.1 says, uh, says, after talking about the leaders, Paul puts heavy emphasis on what's coming next. And he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine. Not only should we be teaching sound doctrine, I think what he's talking about is sound doctrine. The next two verses begin with the words older women or older men and older women. I was tempted to call this the doctrine of godly old people, but I didn't think that would write well as a chapter title in like a systematic theology book. But it's the doctrine of godly old people. But it really isn't just about old people because verses 4, four through 8 talk about the relationship between the old the saints and the young saints, and the responsibility that the, whole, the old have to disciple the young. So really, this is the doctrine of intergenerational discipleship. Practically, what this looks like, it's the need for the church to have older saints and younger people living, learning, and growing together. Pastor Spencer was the most amazing example of this. I plan on using Pastor Brian and his life and every one of my servants from here on out as an example of this. Because the guy just was in a, just, in a, just lived out a vibrant life of love for God and love for his people. I was just thinking through on Friday, I was just like all the different places that Pastor Brian was showing up. Uh, and this was just like last week. I think I was talking to Cliff. And uh, was it just last week? He was leading life group with you guys, right? I mean, just last week. He was in there leading and teaching and helping people grow and challenging them in the Word. Just last week, last week, he taught children's church back when we had children's church. He uh, took some of our teens out on a regular weekly basis. This would have been a good gig. He brought them out to like lunch like once a week and brought them out and taught them about the Lord. He discipled teens. He discipled couples. He came into my life and discipled me as a pastor and discipled many other pastors. He came into my home and, and came and was a blessing to my family. This guy was just showing up all over the place. Our church needs, pastor, needs people like Pastor Brian, and it also needs you. Now, you, you might say that, that the reason Pastor Brian did that is because he had pastor in front of his name. You think that's why he did it? I don't. Because all the stuff that I just talked about that Pastor Brian did, 
was after 2008. What happened in 2008? Pastor Brian retired. Did Pastor Brian retire? Maybe from pastoring. But he knew this was a non-negotiable calling of the God as an older saint. And this was his function. This was his task within the body of Christ. I can't say it had nothing to do with being a pastor. But I can say that this went so far beyond just being a pastor. Sometimes we are tempted to think that cool new worship styles or neat programs are going to bring people in and make disciples. But this is the thing about the music and the programs is that they're really easy to fabricate. They're easy, really easy to make them and for them just to be man-made. There's nothing really always that miraculous about them. I don't want to undermine them, but I want to highlight one thing that I think is truly miraculous. is a church full of older saints that love and disciple younger people just like Pastor Brian did. That would be miraculous. And that would be a sign of God's Spirit working here at Calvary Baptist Church. The church doesn't just need older people. That's not what the church needs. We don't just need old people to come and sit in the pews. Just as we need spiritually healthy, qualified leaders to lead the church and disciple the church, we need spiritually healthy, qualified, older saints to come and disciple us here at the church. So what are these qualifications? What makes an older saint qualified to do this, to fulfill this great calling of God for discipleship within the church? What are the qualifications? For the sake of time, I'm going to lump together the qualifications for older men and women together because the qualifications are essentially the same. And their task is also essentially the same. In this passage, Paul uses the term likewise twice because he's interconnecting these together. He's building upon these concepts. And so it's one general concept that has some specific applications based on some of the gender, uh, but the, the gist of it is the same. So it says, what are the qualifications? Well, one, you have to be older. Now, in one sense of the term older, older can apply to anyone that has somebody younger than them. And so there is a sense that we all are called to these qualifications and to be discipling uh, the young. But older in, uh, you know, back then, I think very similarly now, uh, started around the age of 60. Although some people would look at me, you know, that I've taught in youth group for years and say, I'm old. And that might be true too. But 60 was kind of the age uh, that uh, oldness was, uh, you know, kind of recognized. We kind of still recognize in that same I know everybody's like pointing at each other and wives and husbands is like, you're old, I'm not. Ha <laughs> ha, I get it. Uh, I'm not, by the way, I guess. But I think it's important to look at this 60 plus because, uh, you know, I think I've, I've heard this from, from people, older saints in the church through the years, and sometimes people just say stuff because it's a joke and it's hard to know whether they're serious or not. But sometimes I've heard people say church and ministry is a, is a young man's game or a young woman's game. And I get it because I feel how tired, you know, and emotionally draining and just go, go, go. I know how hard it is. And so I kind of, I get a level of that. But I can't help but believe that if we really believe that, we've been deceived. 
We've been deceived. We're allowing Satan to come in and knock out pillars of the church in our midst while we're inside the building if we let people seriously say that ministry is a young person game. And that's it. It's not. We've been deceived. Because right here in this passage, God is, God is saying, Paul is saying, Titus is being called to, to tell the church and call the older saints into active, active ministry and discipleship. But it's not enough just to be old, like I said before. You have to be qualified with character. It calls us to this, these character traits. It tells us to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and steadfastness, reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Now, I don't think this is a complete list uh, any more than the, the qualifications leaders was talking about all the qualifications, all the spiritual fruit that's supposed to be borne out in leaders' lives as Christians. And, but, you know, this is, this is a great start. I think it's an incomplete list, but it highlighted some of the things that were deficient in the church of Crete. And I think Paul was trying to like point out and highlight some of these things specifically. So it's not a comprehensive list, but it's very similar, you'll notice, to the list of the spiritually qualified leaders in chapter one. And I think Paul's bringing up this bar. And he's saying, hey, we need spiritually qualified leaders, but you know what's just as important? Spiritually qualified older saints. We need them both. One's not more spiritual than the other. Both are needed and are essential for the church to function the way that God wants it to function. Noticeably absent in this list of qualities are grumpy, judgmental, bitter, and fearful about the future. Older saints, you want to talk about things that will diminish your ability to be able to disciple those are some of them. Those are some of them. Older saints can either be the reason people come to church or they can be the, pe the reason that people leave the church. Now, I want to say before anyone mischaracterizes what I'm saying, I want to think, I, I say, I believe this with my whole heart is that we have been blessed with older saints who take this seriously. This is, this is something, I look out in, in the congregation, I have served right next, side by side with so many of you, I have no doubt that a lot of our saints are, are involved in discipling and living this out. But at the same time, those embers out of the fire get cold, and we forget. And the trials and the pressures of life you know, draw us away from the church. There's always reasons. Whenever we, we leave and disengage the church, there's always reasons why. And they're not all bad reasons. Some are, but they're not all bad. And I want this to be like a stirring up, an encouragement for all of you older folks who are here today because we need you. We need you. But guys, you can't complain about the state of the church or our young people if you aren't helping disciple them. Can't. I don't think you'll complain once you do start to disciple them because you'll see God working and moving in people's lives. And that brings you, it brings us the joy of the Lord. That's the joy that we saw in Pastor Spencer. So what's your task? A spiritually qualified, healthy, older saints within the church. It says to teach. 
to teach what is good, what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach us how to love others, to how to love our families, how to love, work, and glorify God in everything that we're doing. Older men, teach the younger men. Younger women, teach the older women, teach the younger women. And this, when it's talking about teaching, this is not just Sunday school. That's not where teaching kind of takes place in Sunday school. But this isn't just talking about being a Sunday school uh, teacher one hour a week for on a Sunday or, you know, that's not the limitations. That's a very small view of discipleship if that's what you're thinking. What this is talking about is best demonstrated, I think, by a couple in my life that, that modeled this in front of me. Their names were, they lived back in Wisconsin, um, Dick and Kathy Ball. Dick has since passed and is, is with the Lord but this was back in Wisconsin, just came out of college, not a penny to my name, served at Camp Barakel for the summer, didn't make any money doing that, so I was even poorer at the end of summer than I was at the end of paying for four years of college, and I had to borrow Eunice's folks' car to even drive to Wisconsin to candidate at this church, and I finally got there. I didn't have anything. I mean, really, it was just my suitcase, just a few things is, is all I had, and this couple invited me into their home. They gave me a place to stay. They even gave me a car, 1981 AMC Eagle. I will never forget that thing. It was an amazing car. It had just like all-time four-wheel drive. The thing was a beast. They gave that to me. And they, they fed me. They gave me breakfast. They gave me lunch. They gave me dinner. They had a Schwann's truck that came in and delivered ice cream for me. I love uh, butter pecan ice cream to this day because of the Schwann's truck with, with chocolate, ice, uh, or chocolate syrup on top, just in case you wondered. This family was incredible. And I, I was just like, they just, they just poured out this love. They poured out uh, the joy of the Lord. I was like, maybe it's just me because I'm a pastor and they want to get extra credit points with God for being nice to this new pastor guy. They did this for tons of people. I wasn't the first boarder in their house that came in that they took care of in this way. And while I lived with them, I went with, uh, with Dick. He invited me. He was like, let's go do this. Let's go do that. I found myself in the weirdest of spots with Dick, serving people for the sake of the Lord. I remember we were doing a work project at the church and we were, he was up on top of ladders. I was too scared to even go up. And he was carrying like his pneumatic air gun with him. And he's like, you know, he goes, just shooting up walls and, you know, putting up studs and all kinds of stuff. I remember once he shot his thumb and stuck it to the two by four on top of the ladder, pried himself off and then just like wrapped it with tape and like kept on going. I was like, wow, that's a good example. You know, it's like, it's like this guy and those, those are just, you know, you know, physical serving kind of ways, but exude, it exuded uh, their love for the Lord and bringing me alongside of them and modeling this idea of discipleship to the young because they invited me into their home. They invited me into their family. It wasn't two separate things where we came and we met up at this church and then we talked. It was we lived life together everywhere and it was amazing. And I will never forget them and their influence as part of that. And so in the same way that strong home needs parents and grandparents, the church needs spiritual parents and grandparents to help us apply truths of Scripture to our lives, to teach us how to love and teach us how to work. And who better than people who have already done it? In closing, I've got one more illustration I'd like to share with you. Uh, I can't go through a, a sermon, it seems, without quoting something from John Piper, and so here you go. Uh, in his book, it's called Don't Waste Your Life, and I highly recommend it. 
It's a book that John Piper wrote, and he geared it towards specifically for teens, which is ironic because when you read through it, you start saying it's a book that uh, impacts and challenges us wherever we are at in life to not waste our lives because every moment is a gift and a blessing from the Lord. And he, he talks about two, um, uh, he gives two scenarios and two stories that contrast and challenge our thinking, I think, about our lives. On the, in the first story, uh, Piper was talking about a young couple. They were newly married. They had gone through Bible school. They had studied, studied, studied for the purpose of going out on the mission field. That's what they had done for all these years. They were finally about to go out on the mission field. They were on their way pretty much. And then this horrible tragedy occurred, and this young couple were killed. They never had the opportunity after all of this investment and training and time, resources and, and sweat and tears and getting, their, you know, getting trained, they weren't actually able to go out and minister and serve and love these people and share the gospel. People were throwing up their hands like, why God? Why did you allow this to happen? That's a horrible waste. We're questioning the sovereignty of God because of this. Like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why? What a waste. I wish he would have stopped there because in the, he told this other story about a husband and wife who lived their life, went to church, got to be 65, retired, and went and lived down in Florida and lived out the rest of their days playing golf. He asked the question, why is it that we look at this one over here and say, what a waste? but yet there's a disconnect and we can't look over here and say, what a waste. What a waste. If to live is Christ and die is gain, why do we stop living for Christ at any point in our lives? Whether it's 60, 65, or 70. If to live is Christ and die is gain, shouldn't we serve Him in this way, all the days of our life. Again, older folks, older saints, I want to stir you up. I want to get you excited about staying in the game, about loving sometimes people who are sometimes unlovable, like myself. I hope it stirred you up this morning. And young folks, I hope it stirred you up too. Because it's really easy for us to complain about the old folks, about the old saints, and the way they think, the way they dress, the way they sing. But I think we've got to be really careful because the older saints are one of the greatest gifts that God has given us in our lives. If we are to accept God's word and the sound doctrine that Paul has given to Timothy to bring order into the church, we need godly, spiritual, qualified leaders. And we need godly, qualified, spiritual, older saints discipling us. 